And welcome to another episode of Train Talk with Train Tech. I'm your host, Paul Gillette, and joining me today, of course, as always, is Gary Polino. So today we're going to be covering a number of subjects that people have asked us about, my own questions and so forth. So hang on and I hope you enjoy the program. So we thought we would talk about some of the collateral pieces you can do, you know, like turnout controllers, your aux box, uh, maybe some wiring issues on just like this is some of the stuff I'm facing myself is uh, to make sure I wire it properly, like crossover turnouts and so forth. So when I plug in a DCC system, I don't, you know, short out the world. Gotcha. Now, you used to have links for Oxbox on your website. I could not find links to Oxbox on the website. Am I just missing it? Um, as links to, well, we have the product um, Oxbox on our website. Um, I don't know, now that you say that, I don't know if I have a link to the manufacturer website. I will have to check that. But the manufacturer website, we put up a special product website exclusive to the Oxbox, and it's Oxbox, right. oxboxdcc.com. It's um, auxboxdcc.com. Well, I, I Googled and just came over, but I thought, golly, there used to be a link right on the website. Yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to double check that. Okay. Now, Oxbox, I saw some in Model Railroader, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to ask Gary to see if if this is the same generic product as an Oxbox. It was somebody's, oh, I'll never find it now, but it was in the front part, and it was an ad for these plug-in controllers that allow you to do a lot of different stuff, and I thought, well, it looks like, you know, a competitor to Oxbox, uh, where they would do oh, auto-reverse. I think they had the capability of doing, uh, oh, turnout control and so forth like that. Well, I I don't think that would really necessarily be a comp- competing product of ours specifically. Um, I, I think maybe we should back up a little bit. And the up until this point, prior to the Oxbox, um, mm-hmm. the industry, we had what is referred to as stationary decoders or accessory decoders. They're basically they're essentially the same thing. Okay. Um, in the early days of DCC, I think they were called accessory decoders more so because we were used to having accessories off of our power packs. Um, and the name stationary decoder uh, later evolved uh, because that's just, just like it sounds. It stays put where we put mobile decoders in locomotives. Mm-hmm. A stationary decoder is in a fixed location, either right underneath the bench work or maybe uh, some type of a behind a control panel at a fixed location. And those are primarily used to control um, switch machines for turnouts. Um, you can also use them to control signal heads. And there are a number of companies out there. And, uh, for example, Digitrax and RR Circuits, just to name two um, specific ones off the top of my head, um, they have boards that are designed to control signal aspects, but the principle is still based on stationary decoder properties. In other words, locomotives, we have mobile mobile decoders in them, and we give those a unique address so we can control the locomotives individually. We also have the stationary decoder address platform, which is completely independent of locomotive addresses. And you can have, uh, per the NMRA standard, um, address 1 to 2044, so those are the possible stationary decoder addresses you could have for turnouts or signals or, or what have you. And um, they, the stationary decoders, a lot of them are specifically designed for turnouts, so they give you um, a voltage that you're, you're going to need to operate a, a switch machine, for example, 
let's say you have an Atlas snap switch, and those are designed to operate around, you know, between, uh, you know, 13 to 16 volts AC, and it just needs a quick burst of power so that you, you can operate the solenoid, and then the power shuts off. There's also um, stationary decoders to throw stall motor machines like a, a tortoise, for example, and those will give you, um, you know, around between... 12 to 14 volts out, and it'll give you a constant voltage out because the stall, stall motor machine is looking to have power all the time. And most of these these uh, stationary decoders, they're limited as to the current uh, capabilities. They're usually rated in uh, milliamps. Most A lot of them are maximum of around 250 milliamps, which is about a quarter of an amp. Um, so that's kind of a general overview of stationary decoders as far as operation. The Oxbox, we kind of went in a little bit different direction, and we actually refer to it as an appliance because it, it uses DCC for control, but we're not giving you any kind of voltage out. And um, it, essentially, the easiest way to think of it is it's the Oxbox is DCC-controlled toggle switches. So, in other words, anything that you might have put a toggle switch on the fascia of your layout to turn off a, a track, uh, building lights, lighting for sceneries, um, anything like that that you would just, you know, you would wire from your power source, you loop through the toggle switch, and then you would use the toggle switch to manually turn that, that device on and off. Well, about a year and a half ago, a custom builder friend of ours, Stephen Lamb, who um, who builds uh, custom layouts all over the country, he had a client who has a carnival scene, and the the gentleman wanted to be able to turn the carnival scene on and off from his DCC throttle. The only problem was that the whole scene drew about an amp and a half because of all the lighting and the motors for the Ferris wheels and so forth. So there was nothing that was commercially made that we found um, that had that current rating. So what we helped him do is he just we used an auxiliary relay. We operated the coil of that relay from a stationary decoder and then let the relay switch the heavy load of the carnival scene. So I researched it a little bit more, and uh, we talked with Larry Meyer, who is a, a proven engineer in the DCC industry. He does a lot of design for DCC specialties with their PSX breakers and a number of other products. And um, I threw out the concept to him, and uh, he came up with a, a plan for us, and we, we developed the Oxbox. And the, the basic format of the Oxbox is uh, we tap onto your DCC power bus to get the digital command, and it, okay. and it also powers the processor, but it only draws about 80 milliamps. And then the Oxbox has um, – we've got two versions. One has eight switches, and one has 12 switches. Um, that switches, what do you mean by well, you know, control capability, devices? Yes, exactly. Um, so okay. if I use, when I, re, I guess when I, sh I should say when I use the word switch pertaining to Oxbox, I'm literally referring to um, just like a toggle switch. The only difference is instead of using um, relays or mechanics, we use solid state MOSFETs, which is an, okay. which is an electronic switch, and they're pretty, uh, they're pretty rugged. So the Oxbox, um, We've got eight switches on on the board, and they're rated at three amps, up to 30 volts AC or DC. And um, basically, anything that you could possibly think of that you would turn on and off with a toggle switch, now you would loop through the Oxbox, and using the stationary decoder address platform that we just mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. each each switch can have its own address, or you can you can gang the switches up and have you know one address turn them all on and off depends on what your what your needs are so now um by doing this if a customer has uh, a heavy load like the carnival scene or um a real popular use uh, that we we're seeing a lot of guys are buying it for our staging yards to turn staging tracks on and off um especially because uh, you've got sound locomotives out there now and they're just chewing up booster power sitting there idling away. So now, you know, via your throttle or, um, you know, if you're using train control software, for example, you can turn those staging tracks on and off as you need them. Um, but the 
we went a little bit further too is now you can also take that uh, any switch on the aux box and you can tie it to a photo cell input for example we had a couple of photo cell inputs on there so uh, we had a guy come up with a really clever use he had a hidden a couple of hidden staging tracks and instead of having to always watch where he came to the end of the track what he did yeah. he put a photo cell under there and it was dark so you had to put a little bit of light there but now he sends that train into the staging yard and forgets about it because when the locomotive gets up to the photo cell photo cell shuts the switch off which turns the track power off and now his train is laid up where he needs it to be and he doesn't have to worry about it cool um, you can also um, you, you can flash the switches uh, so you could actually uh, take two switches and program them to the same address and have them flash on and off opposite each other and create a simple grade crossing um, you okay so and you could have that triggered by the uh, photo cell as well or you could have it triggered um, with uh, software so that uh, if you're using train control software, when the train gets into a block, you can activate those two um, those two switches and have have them wigwag a crossing from that that sample. You could um, you could take a, a sound module, and uh, let's say you've got a I don't know, let's say a steel mill or something, and uh, as the operators are coming by, the train will hit the photocell, turn the sound module on, and you'll get the ambient sound of the steel mill as uh, as somebody's going by. So there's uh, all kinds of uses that you that you could come up with, and uh, as more and more folks are are uh, getting hold of the the unit, they're coming up with ideas we haven't even thought of yet. Okay, and this draws its power <clears throat> and control signals through the bus. The um, the only the only power that the aux box actually uses itself is you just take uh, two wires to your DCC bus, and the processor for the aux box, which is the DCC control part, is is all that it, all that um, you're using from DCC. We put in opto isolators so that all of the switches on the aux box. Are, electri- are optically isolated so that if something happened in any of your external control devices, it won't come back through and onto your DCC bus to harm your DCC system. Any devices that are powered um, through the aux box, you furnish whatever external voltage you need. So it's just like if you were wiring a light in a in a a building. You, you could come off the accessory terminals of an old power pack and you'd run one side to the light as your common and then how you would normally you'd cut in a toggle switch on the other lead. Instead of actually going through a mechanical toggle switch, you would wire and loop through uh, one of the switches on the aux box, which is a MOSFET. And now instead of having to mechanically turn that device on and off, you'd do it with a stationary decoder address. And the switches are all completely independent of each other, so you don't have to have the same voltage. You could have 12 volts DC on switch one, and the very next switch next to it, you could run, you know, 24 volts uh, AC and turn the device on and off. So um, by by letting the user supply his own power, and we give you a little bit higher current rating at 3 amps on the uh, first eight switches, it gives you a lot of flexibility. Um, the high current version um, has four additional switches, and those are rated at eight amps. So you could really switch a lot, uh, a lot higher loads through those if you need to. Is that more like for larger scale? Um, it could be for larger scale. Um, you could use it. Um, um, in some cases, you could actually use that to turn uh, a power bus for an entire power district on your railroad on and off. So if you decided you wanted to kill you know the whole a whole yard let's say or yeah. a whole engine terminal if you if you loop um through uh one of the higher current um switches now you've got the capability so now at the push of a button on your throttle or on uh with the click of a mouse on a train control software you know you could tr- you could shut down an entire division okay so so when i that's why we said when we were Coming up with the concept, that's why we're kind of referring to it as an appliance, because it utilizes DCC for control, but the rest is all external up to you. 
Okay, a lot of flexibility. Let's uh, shift gears because I'm knee-deep in, you know, rebuilding my own layout using the fast tracks, uh, tooling and stuff, uh, doing all the soldering and then coming back in with wood ties. And uh, Now, I'm not making turnouts. I, you know, I spent enough money on just being able to do six different uh, radius turnouts and straights and all that. I've got a source in Jersey who does an excellent job on the turnouts, and he owns all the tooling there. But he sent me, or I ordered, a uh, number eight crossover, not a double, just a single. Mm-hmm. And I've got the one outside loop done, because it's got like 160 feet of track on it. And it's just, you know, I'm only spiking every fifth rail, you know, and soldering every fifth rail. And this is just, yeah, this is time intensive. And so I had to go ahead and plot out where the crossover was going to be. And I just put a couple sections of track on the end of it that I made. And I looked where all the the breaks were, Mm -hmm. you know, all the gaps. And I thought... All right. So I started running bus wire the other day. Now, the main thing here is, you know, it's double track. So is there a problem from DCC or any other way? Just basically, if I fed both main lines, you know, down to the same bus, mm-hmm. which I'll do. And when I had the previous layout, I just changed the polarity. In other words, on one route, the inside rail went to red and the, you know, reverse for the return. But I thought, you know, even though these are going to be going, you know, counterclockwise, clockwise, and it's going to be DCC, does it really make any difference? Because I would just set the... The CV for the direction on, let's say, the inside versus the outside, does that make a big difference? Am I creating shorts or what? Well, with with DCC, um, track polarity um, is irrelevant because we don't have to worry about changing direction with track polarity like we used to do with DC transformers. The direction of the locomotive is, is taken care of by the decoder itself. So from that aspect, polarity um, is irrelevant. But what is relevant is you want to make sure that your rails are consistent. So if you've got, let's just say you had a basic oval, and you've got rail A and rail B for each uh, for each loop, you want to make yeah. you want to make sure that rail A and rail A of the two loops go down to the same common. Um, run of the power bus and rail B of both goes go down to the uh, the other uh, bus and that's where uh, we highly recommend color coding um, your your buses and track feeders the same so that it makes it a lot easier when you go down underneath there instead of having to trying to um, wonder if this is from track a you know rail a track mm-hmm. one and so forth um, so we highly recommend color coding um, so from that aspect it's very simple you if Polarity does come into play. You are getting into a reversing section. Um, then, okay. Then that's where we have the similar problem as running with conventional analog with a power pack, is that the reversing section needs to be isolated, and it, the polarity of that would then need to be flipped as the train in, enters and exits the reversing section. Um, so. That would be, you know, a reversing loop if you came on a single track to a turnout and where it loops back on itself. Um, mm-hmm. A Y, um, like you would normally do to turn trains. Um, sometimes even if you have, let's say, a dog bone and you put a set of crossovers in there, you can create a reversing section with the, with the, by cutting in a crossover. So in that case there, polarity definitely matters. And what we would do in that case, we would take the, reversing section itself and we would double gap the entrance and the exit to it both rails 
Okay. So instead of the old days where we would we would take the old double pole, double throw toggle switch or an Atlas controller, and then you had the guessing game. You had to make sure you threw that switch just at the right point so that the <laughs> that the train didn't wind up uh, jerking back and forth as it tried to go in the loop. <laughs> yeah. Um, what we have, we're very fortunate now in the days of DCC, is a device called an auto reverser. And there's a number on the market. Um, uh, Digitrax has their AR1, and DCC Specialties has their PSX series, and an OJR, um, Lens, MRC. Just about everybody um, has their own version, and they're all they're all pretty similar in um, in operation. And and what you'll do is you will take two wires from your DCC main bus and go to the input side of the auto reverser. And then from the output of the auto reverser, then you go to the reversing section. And you just have to make sure, however many number of feeders that you have on that reversing section, depending on how long it is, that the feeders to the auto reverse only get power through that auto reversing device. Now what happens is your train is approaching the reversing section, and if the polarity is misaligned to the main line, as soon as the locomotive wheels hit that gap, there's a there's essentially a short circuit taking place, but the auto reverser senses that and instantaneously will flip the polarity so that the train keeps moving uh, transparent to the user. Um, so that has um, that's one huge advantage to DCC that we're being able to put it to work for us to do uh, to do that instead of having to to uh, play around with toggle switches. All right. So in the instance of that of a single crossover between two tracks. So you, in essence, have two diverging routes meeting. Mm -hmm. And if you did it under my scenario where, you know, the A, as you say, rail A meets uh, with rail A and B with B, had, if you did it that way, that doesn't require auto reversing, does it? Not necessarily. If you just if you've got a couple of parallel main lines and you're just going to cross from one track to the other, or uh -huh. or even a universal interlocking where you can cross from one way to the other in either direction, as long as the the crossover doesn't form a reversing section. Okay. Um, for example, if you just had two ovals. And, yeah. and you put a, um, a crossover between them, you know that wouldn't that wouldn't require any kind of reversing in that particular area. It's okay. it's it's more any any case where you can you know mechanically and electrically form a reversing section is what you got to watch for. Um, the only thing with, with uh, turnouts that you you got to watch, and a lot of the modern turnouts that are being manufactured today are what they call DCC friendly, mm -hmm. and um, if you had some of the some, some of the older Walter Shinohara, for example, to use them, is they had an electric, uh, basically like an electro frog, where it was powered with based on the position of the, the turnout. Um, for DCC, the DCC systems tend to be a little more susceptible to short circuits than the old power packs used to be. So what what happens now is, for example, in the points. A lot of times you might see there was a metal throw bar between them, and and depending on which way the point was thrown, that was energized by the stock rail that it was up to. What happens now, though, is when you got DCC there, and if you have that same condition, depending on might be the the width of the um, the tread on your wheel sets. If the gap between the open point and the stock rail isn't wide enough, sometimes you can wind up with a short circuit in there. So to correct that, you would essentially take that throw bar and you would need to cut a gap in that metal uh, strap between the two points so that um, so that they're electrically isolated from each other. The other thing that you need to do on, on some of those types of turnouts is on either side of the frog from the closure rails coming from your points, um, you would cut, a, you'd saw cut a gap on that side of the frog, and then on the other side of the frog, and then um, that would now electrically isolate those those points, which tend to be uh, troublesome in DCC. So they can be a, can be a little bit of work. And if you're you know if you're really hand laying your own turnouts, 
and soldering the frogs in that. That's, that's something you have to watch out for as well. All right. So, well, let me ask you then, if you've got uh, separate power wires for the frog, uh, does that add any complexity to it so that when you throw the turnout, it's going to juice the frog? Uh, you know, like if it's a tortoise or uh, any of the others, does that add any kind of uh, complexity to it? Um, it? It does, but there are um, a number of ways of doing it. Uh, you can you can do it uh, fairly simply on your own. If you let's say you've got tortoise switch machines, for example, they have auxiliary contacts on them, um, single pole, double throws, and uh, what you can do with that is you can take a wire from the frog to the common of one set of those terminals and then wire two, take two wires from each of those uh, contacts and go to your DCC bus. And as the tortoise throws, it will align the polarity of the frog based on the move through the turnout that you're going to make. Um, there's also um, a little bit easier way to do that, too, is if you want to kill two birds at one stone. For example, DCC Specialties has a product called the hare. It's kind of a play on words, tortoise and the hare. Um, and what that does, it's got a connector that plugs right on the edge connector of the bottom of the tortoise. And you take two wires from that to your DCC bus, and that gives the power to operate the turnout as well as the DCC command to throw the turnout. And then you just take one wire off the terminal block and go to the, the frog on you. And then that will give you um, turnout operation and frog polarity all with one device. Okay. Because I know Fast Track sells a, what do they call theirs, a frog juicer, I think? Well, that's um, that's the other device that I was going to uh, mention, especially if you're using uh, hand throws um, in a yard is a perfect example. Um, if you're using, let's say, a caboose ground throw. And uh, you, the hex frog juicer is, is very similar to an auto reverser. And... You will take two wires from your DCC bus to the, the hex frog juicer, and then uh, they've got them, uh, I believe, in multiples of uh, one singles, two, two packs, and six that you can do. And you take, uh, take a wire off the hex frog juicer and go to the frog. And when your locomotive is going through the turnout, it hits that frog, and just in the same way with the reversing section, there's a short circuit that takes place, but the solid-state electronics instantaneously will flip the polarity of that frog to match uh, the alignment of the turnout. Okay. Wow. So Pretty cool. So there's a, there's a number of different ways to, that you can do that. There's also, too, uh, that's becoming very popular is by new rail models is the Blue Point turnout controller. And it's a manual turnout controller. Um, it's similar in, in looking as the um, tortoise machine, but it's much smaller. Um, and it uses, uh, much like uh, model, radio, model plane, uh, the radio control cables that they use in, uh, in where you've got a wire that slides inside a tube. And you got a knob on the fascia of your layout, and as you pull the knob in and out, you throw the turnout. But they also have auxiliary contacts in there, similar to the tortoise machine, that you can throw the polarity on your your turnout. And then we, and there's a, another new, fairly new arrival on the market um, by a company DCC Concepts. Um, they've got the cobalt switch machine, and um, it's. It's a stall motor switch machine, very similar to the tortoise, and uh, it also has contacts on it. But instead of having uh, an edge connector on it or solder pads, what they did is they put a solderless connector on there where you just push a button and you slide the wire in there and release the button and the wire is captured in there. Um, so it's pretty neat. And they uh, they kind of beefed it up a little bit, too, as they put uh, gold-plated contacts and phosphorus bronze wiper wires in there. So it's um, it's pretty robust. In uh, for uh, for operation, especially if you were maybe like a heavy uh, club operation. I saw a uh, promo video on the cobalt, and I thought, "Wow, this is you know pretty idiot proof." You know. 
Yeah, so, that's made in Australia, isn't it? Yeah, it's made by a company called DCC Concepts in Australia, and um, they're available here in the states. We carry them. Um, we just brought we just we just brought them in uh, about a month and a half, two months ago, and they're selling like crazy. I can't keep them in stock fast long enough. And, well, I think the thing is, we've got uh, the club layout has everything from the old twin coil, you know, international New Jersey's up to tortoise, and you know, we had to yank a number of them when we were revising the uh, the electronics. And, you know, you just go, well, wow, I can't get my hands up in there to do the soldering. And so you end up, you know, unmounting the, the control, dropping it down, putting big leads on it so that you can then solder at a, uh, at a reasonable distance. And I thought, you know, this cobalt approach of just, you know, doing the insert wire on that coated uh, board is just like sliced bread. Oh, sure. You can uh, you can put your wires and everything in uh, while you're sitting at the bench, and then you go right up underneath, and then you mount the terminal, and the wire the cable's already installed for you. So uh, it definitely uh, is a time saver. And um, the tortoise machines. Too. They uh, they have uh, an edge connector that's made for those that you could pre-solder your wires onto that. So you mount the tortoise and then you can just press the edge connector on there. But the cobalt with that solderless connector is is, is gold. I wish uh, I wish those were around ten years ago when I first started my layout. Let me ask you, what's new in the world of decoders? Um, well, we've got. Um, the let's see for the uh, well, well perfect sound decoders I should say is um, um, very new that's just um, is finally finally shipping the last couple of months is the new QSI Titan series um, decoders that everybody's been waiting for and um, we've also got um, ESU Loke Sound has been coming out of the woodwork they um, they they've Got some decoder performance. What their motor control is is phenomenal. It's uh, the back EMF for slow speed operation is really really cool, as as well as the Titan. Um, but the uh, ESU they have been working very hard. Um, a gentleman Matt Herman um, took over um, the sales of ESU here in the states. Uh, I think almost two years ago now, and he has been traveling the countryside getting all kinds of updated recordings for them and a lot of uh, recordings that are, were much needed in the market. For example, some of the older, smaller EMD switchers and uh, to everything to the modern um, MP36, um, which is very common on a lot of modern passenger trains and they've got a lot of recordings out uh, on their website now because that decoder is uploadable so you know either we can do it for you or uh, the end user if he's got a, a low sound programmer can upload sound sets to uh, to these decoders and you can uh, customize them to uh, you know what you want them to be and they've uh, they've got a couple of versions one is a, uh, a fairly compact package with a wire harness and an 8-pin plug on it. And they've also come out with an Atlas-style board called the Loke Sound Select Direct, which is, um, which is a, a direct replacement for many, many locomotives, including the older Atlas, um, some of the Cato HO locomotives, uh, I think even some of the Stuarts that would probably fit in, um, Atherin Genesis. And it's, uh, it's it's become a pretty impressive product. I think they kind of fell by the wayside there for a couple of years. They they really weren't keeping up with what the American market was really looking for. And Matt's really brought a lot of a, a modeler's perspective to the company because he you know he is a he's a modeler himself. Um, so it's pretty impressive. Uh, we've uh, we talked about cobalt and. Um, Couple other things that are new. Uh, we brought in a new uh, vendor uh, called Railstars, and um, they are also making custom DCC products. One of their first products is a three amp DCC power booster, and in a lot of cases, I think we had touched on this a uh, couple of couple of our podcasts ago. 
by needing to add more power to your layout because, you know, you might have more trains running and uh, with the advent of sound locomotives. Well, this uh, this little booster here, it's it's universal. It's not uh, really specific to a manufacturer. So you can use this with any any manufacturer's system. And uh, it has uh, overcurrent protection. It has over-temperature protection. And it has uh, very fast-acting short-circuit. Uh, detection and it can also tell the difference between a short circuit and uh, an inrush load of maybe power when you power up your layout and you kind of have a little bit of an inrush with some of these sound locomotives and um, so it's 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 rated at three amps which doesn't sound like it's a lot but an HO scale three amps is usually enough in a lot of um, power districts that you know you you know you're running at least six locomotives um, on that, and you can almost use this all over the place. For let's say you got a freight yard and then an engine terminal, and mainline one, mainline two, and these can work not only as your power booster, but you also could use it um, s simply like a, like a circuit breaker as well because it's it's pretty fast acting. So is is that about where the say like a Genesis? The newer locomotives out there, are they running, what, about a third of an amp, a half amp? Not even. Um, really? Okay. They're even, even pulling a train. The, uh, the, the locomotives that are being manufactured today, they've got very efficient five-pole skewed motor. And, um, you know, even the, even the sound decoders themselves, I mean, they do draw a little bit more than a conventional locomotive, but the motors themselves are way more efficient than the days of the old Ather and Blue Box. Um, so I would say, you know, under full load, you're, you might be drawing a quarter of an amp with a modern locomotive. No kidding. Yeah. Um, you, what you got to watch out for is the, the older ones, the, you know, the old Ather and Blue Boxes and, um, some of the newer Ather and Ready to Rolls, for example, they still have that open wound motor, which they are definitely more efficient than they used to be, but they they will draw a little bit more than, let's say, an Ather and Genesis or an Atlas. Um, you know, you may want to use uh, maybe more closer to a half an amp for that locomotive, but for the most part, they're they're, not, they're really not drawing more than a quarter of an amp. Yeah, and the only thing that prompted me to do that was I had, I don't know, maybe put down 120, 130 feet of track, and my grandson's going, when are you going to have this done? <laughs> and so I said, well, here, let me just hook up this old DC. It's an old, uh, you know, MRC power pack and with alligator clips on speaker wire and just clipped them up, and first locomotive I grabbed – because the good stuff's in here in the office, and like you say, the vintage, what blue boxes are left and stuff. Uh, I grabbed an old yellow box atlas and put it up there, and it uh, it did okay because I just ran it out 50 feet, brought it back. And then I put on one of the, the newer Athern uh, Genesis units, and I was amazed at how much quicker it ran at the same, you know, knob position. And I thought, wow, this thing must not be drawing hardly any current. Yeah, so that's that's exactly that's exactly what it is. That's uh good if you remember from way back in high school physics, Ohm's law, voltage and current are in, uh, inverse proportional to each other. So the um the Atherin Genesis is a much more efficient motor, so at the same voltage setting it would definitely run faster. Okay, well, and I bought a, didn't own one, but I went out and bought an inexpensive multimeter. And because one of the things that Wareis will suggest you do is do a continuity, continuity check on the, the copper-clad ties. And so in all the packages I've bought, you know, and you get in a rush to get something out and, wow, this is neat, let me make two more of these and get them spiked in position. And you go, oh, crap, I didn't do a continuity check on any of this stuff. And i got to admit, though, in 160, 170 feet of track, I've only found maybe six ties that had 
some level of short on it. Not enough for a dead short to shut everything down, but it was certainly, you know, like parasitic loss. So I used the multimeter to go and make sure I had no uh, bridges to the gap there. And is there, because I don't understand, when I get the DCC system, there's a way to measure the power that's going through the track, right, with a multimeter? Yes, Um you can do it with a, a regular multimeter, but you've you got to remember that DCC is kind of an odd duck. It's, a, um, it's not uh, pure DC like the conventional days. It's got a waveform to it. Um, so we, we actually measure it on the AC voltage setting on a multimeter uh, because the DC is looking for a straight, a straight wave versus a, a sine wave. Um, so multimeters, you can get uh, an approximate or pretty close reading um, with them. Uh, there's a device out there called the ramp meter, which is designed specifically to read uh, the DCC wave uh, to give you the most accurate reading. But uh, if you want to measure current, what you need to do is set your meter up to read amperage, and then what you will do is um, come off of your power supply and put, you're going to put the meter in series with one, one lead and what that does is it allows whatever current is being drawn on the railroad to pass through your multimeter um, so that it reads the actual current reading. Now obviously you've got to make sure that your multimeter is is rated at whatever possible current you could be drawing. Um, so you just got to be careful with that because you uh, some of these smaller ones, they really can't pass that much current. But if you're just going to be testing uh, a few locomotives, you know, for the most part, if you're under an amp or so, you should be plenty safe. Uh, this is one of those uh, $15 Harbor Freight uh, specials. Well, then you may, <laughs> you may want to, you might want to just see what the current rating is on it before you before you put it in there. But um, but well, it wasn't the cheapest. They had some for five bucks, but I spurred on the fourteen dollar one because it was bigger and looked more substantial. Um, you're probably good for at least an amp then, which for for basic readings you should be okay. Okay, because uh, I am the electrical part. I mean, I know how to wire it, but. To ask me to go in and find a problem? No, we need to call somebody who knows what he's doing to come in and find a problem. The uh, the meter that you have does it have an audible um, ohm meter on it? Oh, where it uh, will sound off on a short for continuity? Yeah, because uh, a great little trick supposed to a great little trick is um, when you're working on a on a section is I I take my multimeter and I I turn it to the uh, continuity. Um, setting and activate the uh, buzzer, and then I alligate a clip right onto my track. So, so as I'm working, if I do something stupid and I get all of a sudden you get the tone, then you know you just created a short circuit so that you don't go too far and then have to try to go back and figure out where a short might have been. That way, they, uh, sometimes you can catch it while you're working. Well, I know it's got the little sound symbol on it. Do you have to throw it? A switch, or is that just when you turn the rotary knob, you turn it to that section? Um, it depends on the meter, but uh, a lot of times if you've got that audible uh, symbol on there, if you turn the dial to that, then you'll know right away. Just touch the leads together, and if you get the audible tone, then you know you've got the right setting. Oh, okay. Um, but I know that's uh, that saved me a few times that I was working underneath and uh, accidentally reversed a couple of track feeders, but it caught it immediately because uh, I heard the tone. Could you do the same thing with the uh, turn signal bulb? Um, well, the well, we used to use the um, the turn signal bulbs um, for short circuit protection on uh, on on a lot of that, and uh, that was prior to the days of where we had a lot of these modern uh, circuit breakers, and uh, and they worked they worked great because they uh, they absorbed the uh, the fault almost instantaneously. Um, but for if you if for when you're working on the on the railroad, uh, this this would be more in a, a power off situation where you're, you know you've, you've got your, you get your power off and that's you know when you want to connect the multimeter to that. So when you're when you're doing your wiring, if you make a mistake, you can te you can test it as you go without having to turn the system on. But with um, with the power the track power on, um, you can. You can use you could use a tail light bulb 
um, to to test sections uh, of track. And matter of fact, with a ramp meter that I was um, talking about a few minutes ago, um, a little trick that you can do with uh, the automotive lamp with that is you can solder a couple of wires onto that with alligator clips, and you can clip it right onto the ramp meter to simulate a load. And what you can do is, with uh, depending on which version of the ramp meter you get, you you can touch the edge of the ramp meter uh, right to the tops of the rails, and you'll you'll see the meter will light up, and um, you'll get a voltage reading, and then the light bulb will also light up because now you've got a load passing from the track through the ramp meter to that light bulb. And what that does is that light bulb is about a, a good amp to an amp and a quarter, and it's a good way to also see how your feeders are because if you notice on the reading on the on the ramp meter, if your voltage goes down considerably when you put that on, you may not have enough feeders on the track. That's a good way to simulate a load. When I connected both ends, if you envision the the letter C, and so I'd started working at the the top and the bottom, and when I put the last section in of the of the C, all of a sudden the the volts, and this is a real old power pack, dropped from ten to seven. Now this again, just alligator clipped on there just to make sure it didn't have any dead shorts and, uh, you know, next time the grandson was over, Sean Haver, how they run. And I went, wow, this runs a lot slower now. And so one of my buddies goes, he said, well, considering it's just alligator clipped to the track, he said, yeah, you've got a lot of parasitic loss, I guess, just the resistance of the rail. Yeah, rail um, in general, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a steel-based type product. Um, is not a very good conductor at all. Um, you know, nickel silver is significantly better than the old days with the brass track. Um, plus, it helps with oxidation. But you really, you really want to use the power bus from your system. Let that do the work because wire is designed to carry voltage and current, and, and steel rails really aren't. Um, so if you've got a good core infrastructure, um, we, rec we usually recommend a minimum of 14 gauge in HO scale. And we like to see every piece of flex track fed. Um, and if you, if you don't uh, feed every piece of track, what you can do is, you know, you can solder some of the rail joiners um, to help carry that, uh, carry that voltage through there. And then you also probably want to get uh, some feeders in your closure rails on your turnouts to help power the middle of the, the, the turnout. That's usually um, an area that's often overlooked, and they work great in the beginning. But then as we start ballasting and with, uh, you know, time goes by with oxidation, that's where we start losing a lot of that. But, um, but yeah, you're, you're definitely right that you can lose quite a bit through just the rail. Okay. Well, and that's what I've started feeding through the uh, bench work is 14-gauge uh, solid strand. And then I think I'm using 18 on the drop just because I had a bunch of single uh, 18. Yeah, um, 18 is, you know, that's very, it's, it's great because it's heavy, but um, you don't have to go quite that heavy if you don't want to. Um, if you're, if you're feeding, you know, every four feet or so, something like that, you could go to a, you could go to a 22 gauge. Uh, especially if you're, if your track feeders, if they don't, you know, if they don't run more than, let's say, you know, foot to a foot and a half. I think I'm at like seven or eight inches. Oh, yeah, you definitely could use 22, no problem. Okay, well, I just had a bunch of this because that's what I used on the last layout. And I wondered, okay, so I can go down to 2022. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, it might be a little bit easier to work with for you. Okay. Uh, now, you the thing on the closure rails... Now, the fast tracks, of course, they don't use hinges or anything. It's just like a real turnout, mm -hmm. a real switch. So you're talking about wiring that or wiring it on the other side before it's the, the pivot point, let me say. Yeah, usually uh, when we refer to closure rails, we're referring to what would be the swivel point between the swivel point and the frog itself. Okay. That that area where it comes together as a triangle. 
Um, usually, if you can get a couple of feeders in there, that'll help carry through um, the points. In the, the case of the fast tracks and that, where it's a single rail, it'll work beautiful. Mm-hmm. It'll work great. Um, I've had on my own layout. I've got some turnouts that have been in service for um, quite a while, and I actually had to put a couple of very small feeders on the points themselves just to be able to get them to conduct because I was having problems with uh, with them just getting anything. Through. You lose it in that pivot. Uh, there's like a little rivet in the turnout, and mm-hmm. that's that's a, a characteristic place of uh, of losing power in the in these turnouts. Okay, because when I started painting the you know the rail and the ties and stuff, airbrushing it, I made sure I kept the the point where the rail comes up against the uh, the stock rail mm-hmm. clean. Yep, yep, that's a that's a good idea. Because I was surprised, I guess I don't know why, but. Like I was using what Floquel's got, rail tie brown, and Joe's paint has one. I was amazed at the insulating properties of that paint, even just a thin airbrush coat. Whether you want it or not, it's a great insulator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, I had to scratch them off just doing the continuity check on there. I went, I had no idea this was that good of an insulator. Okay. Well, uh, what else on your mind, Gary? Well, um, just I'm just going through some of the uh, other new new items that have hit the street. Um, actually, one another one that's really popular as of late is Woodland Scenics um, just released their new Tidy Track series of rail cleaning products. Oh, and, tell me about it. Um, they've got um, the rail tracker cleaning kit that just came out, and basically it's a uh, it's a little tube handle. And it's got a swivel head on it that you can put a pad on. And the pad is grooved um, to fit the gauge of your track perfectly. And you can run this right up and down the rail. And it's great if you've got like a bridge or, or a place that you really can't quite get in with your hand. If you've got to do some heavy cleaning, um, this will um, this will slide up, slide right along and it'll let you reach into, into places that um, you might not normally be able to reach. Um, so it's, uh, I haven't had a chance to, to actually try one myself because we, uh, they all came in and went right out uh, almost immediately. So I'm going to try to steal one out of the next batch that's due in later this week. And now, is that a, uh, a friction type cleaner or is it a liquid? What is it? Yeah, they've got, um, it's, it's a friction type cleaner, but they've got a solution that you, you put right on it. And it's, um, it, it has different grades of pads in there. Some are really fine to something that's a little more abrasive. Um, if you've got a really tough situation where, um, you're, you've got to get some oxidation off. Um, we don't recommend using anything too abrasive if you can avoid it because you can make small grooves in the head of the rail, which make nice deposits for dirt to collect. And, uh, and create a, a worse problem, but um, but so far what we've seen uh, we've seen of it, it's pretty clever. And um, hopefully next time we talk, I'll be able to give you a firsthand experience uh, use of it. Um, but they also came out with um, the Tidy Track uh, Roto Wheel Cleaner in both HO and N scale, and it's a it's a little base, and it's got a piece of HO track or N scale track. And it's powered by a couple of alligator clips. And what it's got is these nice soft pads that are right up alongside the rail. And you put some cleaner on there. And you put the locomotive on there. And it allows all the wheels of the locomotive to run at the same time while this pad scrubs the tread of the wheel. And it's 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 not very abrasive, which is another a good thing. We don't want to use anything abrasive on our locomotive reels for the same reason. And um, it's it's pretty slick. And I think if you if you saw it, we've got it on our website. Um, you, I think if you were a little clever, you probably could even take this and cut it into a section of rail on your layout and probably incorporate it in, like, your engine terminal and make it a cleaning station as part of the layout. It would be kind of a neat. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's something. One of the guys in the shop was talking about that the other day. I thought it was a pretty clever idea. Yeah, that that would be. Um, all right, let's put up a Woodland Scenics. Yes, put up by Woodland Scenics. It's only been on the street about uh, two weeks. Okay. Did you ever see their... Uh, ready-made model railroads like that you'd put on a 4x8 
comes with the scenery and the mountains and everything. I know they have a number of uh, a number of kits um, yeah. that are available. They yeah. put one up at the hobby shop at an affair with trains here, the one I go to. That's a pretty uh, pretty amazing. They're not inexpensive, but you know what? You do them right when you get it, especially if you got a uh, a child who's beyond playing with toy trains and wants to uh, move up closer to a really spiffy model railroad. Oh sure, that, uh, and not bad at all. Yeah, it takes takes a lot of the guesswork out of it. They pretty much figure out what you need for scenery and materials and that, and uh, good, got a lot of good instructions. And I love woodland scenics. I mean, you you can't blow it. I mean, even even when you make a mistake, it 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 comes out right. <laughs> I, I know. I the first time I did rocks rock carvings on my uh, on my railroad, it's like I just skimmed the directions and used the uh, the pigment the way they tell you to, and I put the black wash over it and. It look fantastic. I mean, it's impo- almost impossible to blow it. Uh, yeah, that's true. They have a lot of nice molds. Uh, they and who is it? Grand Pacific Gems. That's another company that makes they and Woodland Scenics make some really incredible rock molds out there. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, and I'm just skimming our new product section here. A couple more quick items. Uh, train Control Systems um, just released their new AS6 HO scale decoder. Um, it's designed specifically for the Atlas, HO, Alco, S1, S2, S3, and S4 switchers. And what this does is it replaces the factory circuit board in there, um, and it gives you a motor and lighting decoder um, with LED lighting. And uh, um, if you're not familiar with train control systems, their decoders are very, very good. They've got uh, great back EMF control for slow speed operation. And they've got their famous goof-proof warranty so that if you install it and you have an incident, they replace it free as, they replace it free as charge. Um, I've so. seen a lot of their videos on their website. Mm-hmm. TCS, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, it's an impressive product. I like it. So we've got uh, that. That's an, that's one of their newest releases. And the one last thing I wanted to bring out to you guys is uh, recently released by RR Circuits. Um, they have their local net control point. So for Digitrax users, um, this connects right into the um, local net. And what it is, a control point, a lot of times in signaling you'll hear um, that term used, control point. And what that is is essentially it's referring to an interlocking or um, a, a location where you may have a, a passing siding. And that's what this um, local net control point is for. You know, it gives has everything you need on the board, including detection for the track um, for a complete passing siding so that you can control the turnouts, you've got the detection, and you can operate the signals. Um, and again, those, you know, their addresses are, are going to be based on, um, based on controls through um, software or, or uh, your hardware that's your DCC system. So um, there's more and more uh, devices that are coming out there today for uh, for signaling and train control. It's uh, that's that's kind of becoming the next new frontier for us because you know we've got we've got our locomotives, we've got our uh, decoders in there, we've got our DCC system, and that's what we're seeing now is okay. What what's new? What's next? We need you know we need something else now. And um, and that's where we're seeing a lot of growth in there. And and that, again, like we were talking about with the Oxbox, that was uh, that was an avenue we were we we're looking at is with uh, layout animation. And um, and that's in the last uh, the last announcement will be is we have um, the mini Oxbox that's currently in design, which is going to be a smaller version with four switches. And, and we're going to put infrared uh, detectors on it, so you can use infrared for uh, inputs for triggers. Cool. Like so. if you were doing block detection, um, no control. Well, this would be uh, same, same as the uh, the other Oxbox. It'll have four switches on it that you you supply the external power to it um, to control whatever you like. But instead of having photocells, uh, we're going to use infrared. Um, as an alternate means of um, of throwing them, uh, and um, we'll also have uh, timer circuits on there too, because we've had a lot of requests for uh, for guys that want to use the Oxbox to control KD electromagnetic uncouplers, 
And what you can do is you can set the timer on there from 1 to 255 seconds. And so you activate the address. It'll turn the uh, KD electromagnetic uncoupler on. All you do is worry about uncoupling, and then after whatever timer you set, uh, the timer runs and will automatically shut it off for you so you don't burn out the electromagnet. Wow. Okay. Well, I want to remind the listeners, I mean, everything that Gary is talking about is at uh, www.traintechllc. That's, you know, all one group of letters there, T-R-A-I-N-T-E-K-L-L-C.com. And if you click under New Products, you're going to see the the rail SARS uh, power supply that Gary's mentioned, the cobalt switch machines are there. The uh, TCS train control for the uh, uh, the Atlas locomotives, the RR circuits is on there, uh, and even the Woodland Scenics, the uh, tidy track roto wheel cleaner and the uh, tidy track track cleaner. It's all on there. So... Well, Gary, it's been a good conversation. I mean, I certainly learned a lot. Uh, I always love doing these shows with people because it's just, you know, it's just so informative. Oh, so, oh yeah, we uh, we love talking trains, so any excuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, as I uh, mentioned to, uh, to Gary, probably going to do a session uh, with Phil Greenberg here shortly, get caught up on the world of... Uh, MTH, the DCS, and uh, some of their new HO products out. All right, Gary, appreciate it. All right, thanks, Paul. Take care.